I was working today with a large public sector construction organization. It has a variety of procurement routes, some of which are very, very normal, conventional, and some of which are verging on IPD. Within the organization, there are lots and lots of divisions that are responsible for ensuring that projects that they're working on are, well, meet, meet the code. So they're internal organizations. It's not an external permitting authority. It's internal permitting authority, but they have to check they meet the code. And what became clear from the conversation today was that those organizations, internal organizations are preventing the flow of work through multiple projects simultaneously because nobody has sat down with them in the way that, for example, the lean construction community has in California, um, has sat down with the permitting authorities there, particularly in relation to the seismic upgrade of your hospital system, um, to try and smooth the path through, uh, for, for projects going through that system. Um, by talking about, um, well, do we have to submit everything on paper? Can you work with, um, BIM models? Oh, do you need some training on BIM models? Okay. We'll help you learn how to use BIM models because that will enable us to work more smoothly together. So that just came out of a two hour conversation. It, it's part of a research project. The, um, the senior people in the organization want to adopt IPD um, for managing projects. They procure through frameworks. So a framework is a five-year um, agreement, which enables any projects that come on stream in that five-year period to be divvied up between the people who are successful uh, members of the framework. Um, and, and there are a number of different frameworks for different types of work. And as I said, some are more IPD like than others. Um, and the organization is trying to collect loads and loads of information. And that is now getting in the way. And another thing that's getting in the way of projects being successfully delivered. Um, and a lot of this has come out because we have a study action team reading integrated, integrating project delivery. Um, and they are suddenly realizing there is so much more to this IPD thing than they thought there was. And, and that's absolutely fascinating. I mean, I think that Dean Reed, the, uh, who I see as the principal author of integrating project delivery, even though his name appears number three on the list. I think D, Dean has done an absolutely brilliant job of pulling that book together. Um, and I, th I think it, you know, does a, a, a great service to our industry. I think I've spoken for long enough before you interrupt. <laughs> it's uh it's only excitement that you're sensing across the the pond, Alan, and it's excitement because to hear 
hear that they're number one, the best part of that story is that there's a group of leaders that recognize that something has to be different and they're taking action and supporting their teams to make different happen and possible. Second thing is study action team. For a lot of people in our industry, in the construction industry, we don't always take time to read. We don't always have time to read. The systems that we play in almost never give us time. And on an active construction project, it'd be deadly. So you need to have time separate from the hum and drum and the, and the go and the busyness of what sites can be. But for an organization, and what you're referencing here in California, it's Oshpod, or now it's called HKI, as they've been rebranded. And it's taken, it wasn't overnight that it got better, and it still can be better. But the dialogue yeah. is open. And the, the other part that I love about that story is that you are connecting east and west. I mean, technically, it's still all west, but it's from where I'm sitting in I, California. I it's super yeah. far east. It's way. What and, 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 and what triggered this interest is understanding that Sutter was delivering 92% of his projects on budget and on time or better. And this organization was only getting 37%. Yeah, that's a so that's a big statistic, they, Alan. I think that number, and we're seeing even outside of Sutter in the United States, that thirty-seven is closer to twenty-five percent for typical construction projects yeah. that are getting successfully delivered on time or on budget, or a combination of both those together. They don't always come together, but when they do, oh, no, it's all, no, but this the, the, these metrics refer to projects where both are true. It's not either or. Um, both have to be true to get into the, the 37%. And I know that, uh, Bill Seed, for example, uh, reported in 2015 that of the 60 projects UHS had done under IPD, um, 97% were both on time and within budget. Powerful. Welcome to the EBFC show, the easier, better for construction podcast. I'm your host, Felipe Engineer Manriquez. This show is all about the business of construction. Today's show is also sponsored by the Lean Construction Institute. LCI is working to lead the building industry and in transforming its practices and culture. Its vision is to create a healthy and thriving industry that delivers outstanding project outcomes every time for everyone check the show notes for more information now to the show welcome to the show alan mossman alan it is my pleasure and honor to have you on the show and we were talking before the recording started and i was telling alan i said he might not know but in the early days of my lean construction journey there is almost nothing written about lean there's almost no resources whatsoever and but the things that i could find perusing the internet during at, at that time, late hours of night, when I the only time I could study was a lot of things written by Alan. And it was incredible to see and hear about his stories and his adventures in lean construction. And I just wanted to say thank you, Alan, again, for giving me so much juicy stuff to get into and to get addicted to because I've it's become an addiction. And I'm definitely addicted, you know, so much so I've even changed the my clothing to say respect for people and continuous improvement. Because those principles, together with the tactics that you use every day, make such a big difference. So I want to kick it off right away and, and tell, tell the good people of the EBFC show, Alan, 
what got you interested in improving productivity in the first place, especially when it comes to design and construction. And ladies and gentlemen, while Alan is talking, click in the show notes description to get even more of his bio and see his beautiful picture. And while you're there clicking, tap that like button so that Alan and I know that you enjoyed this episode and give us a comment so that we can react to you. And if you're out there as a skeptic and you want to debate, we're ready. So bring it. Thank you, Alan. Take it away. Okay. Thank you. Um, I, th- I think I've always wanted to improve things. My first interaction with construction really was when I was six or seven or eight. Um, I went down to uh, the South Coast here in England uh, to stay with my aunt and uncle. And my uncle was a surveyor. And part of what he did was to design houses for people. Uh, and I watched him doing it. And I know I went home and, and I started designing purposes, went through secondary school and so on, read architecture for first degree, graduated, went straight to business school, got into um, management and organization development and systems thinking. And through the management and organization de- development stuff, I came across Deming's work. And that took me into an understanding of variation and quality and things like that. And that led into lean. And then somebody put the architecture and the lean together and said, we're getting involved in lean construction. Do you want to join us? So I did. That was 2001 when there was probably even less stuff out there on the web. Um, and I started researching stuff. And, and I was doing some work at London Heathrow in the central area and noticed that there was something very strange going on, which I didn't understand. So I started asking questions and it turned out they were using Last Planner. So I learned as much as I could about Last Planner, um, realized that I didn't know the half of it, tried to get in touch with, uh, with Glenn, didn't manage to. So I wrote to, Greg and Greg replied immediately. And, um, within a couple of three months, I was out doing a course with Greg, I think in Las Vegas at the, the gaming Institute or whatever it is, training center in Las Vegas. We, we got on like a house on fire and, and, and everything took off from there. So, you know, last planner has been a major part of what I've done over the last 20 years, um, trying to improve my knowledge and help others improve theirs, um, in that area. No, that's a great story. We've got mutual friends, of course, Greg and Glenn are powerhouses in this movement. And, and Greg was such a natural attractor and just an all around super helpful guy. And, you know, even Glenn to a lesser degree, (laughs) And not only say that because, because Glenn's still out there kicking. And I remember Alan, one time I was in Ireland, I was going to speak at a conference and I had, uh, I just so happened to have my last planner system checklist that I'd created uh, based on LCI standard work. And I showed it to Glenn and I said, Hey, I want your feedback on this. And he took it over and, and he thought and, and asked me a few questions and said, you know, the first, first question was, have you tested this? Like, have you used it? And I said, the whole thing has been tested. Like the way we got to this was we took all the standard work from 
probably easily 300 years of people's combined experience. And then we tested it immediately to get it into this form. And there's a lot of things on there that uh, you have to be decent at facilitation to, to make it work, to put the energy mm -hmm. into it. And like you said, when you first read about it, and Greg has a great paper on last planner system for foreman and superintendents, but reading it is not enough. You have to go experiment in the wild with it. When you were at uh, Heathrow, did you by chance come across a gentleman named Vic Ortiz? No, I didn't. He was working on the Terminal 5 and I was working on Terminals 2 and 3. So I didn't meet Vic or Glenn or any of the, the current uh, is it, uh, PPI crew um, on that, who were on that project. I think when I was trying to get, into, get in touch with Glenn, I was picturing him in uh, Oakland. And he was actually in London. <laughs> it's a small world of construction people. That's the, that's the world of the story there. So I think what, for everyone listening, if you've got uh, questions and you want to reach out to Alan, his uh, information will be included in the show notes and definitely hit us on the comments for things that you want to follow up on, because, you know, this type of stuff, we're, we're here, we're here we're spreading it. We're practicing it. For practitioners, and I want to come back to Deming because I just can't resist. As Jay Carroll knows, who's been a, a longtime guest on my show, Alan, we've had LinkedIn live debates on Deming where we've taken sides, and he's even named his dog Little Deming. And uh, as like as I think more like a joke to me than <laughs> because I love Deming like so, yeah, yeah. and uh, and I'm not shy about it. I am not shy about it, but I think that that's worth coming back to. I think. You know, that that background you had uh, coming up and just having appreciation and an awe, you know, something that a lot of people that, that are drawn to this industry have in common and that we really do like to create useful things. And I'm going to just classify you, Alan, as a change maker and a tinkerer because you went to work right away designing houses and then getting your hands dirty with stuff. So I want to I want to dive deeper because I know <clears throat> looking at your calendar that you shared with me, you're doing a lot of work these days in integrated project delivery. For people that don't know what that is, can you explain what it means and why it's important for the construction industry? I think it's important for the construction industry because it requires customers to take the initiative. Construction customers, owners, clients, whatever you want to call them, are rebuilding i.e. changing construction, both production and design, but by procuring collaborative projects, relational, using relational contracts, and um, using integrated project delivery, which is a way of getting early contractor involvement where all the major parties are signed up to one contract. So it's not that radial system that's typical of normal construction, a form of contracting that's been around for 3000 years. It's a completely novel way that I believe was first used in the US military, in the US army um, in the late 1980s. And then 
has been around the world and come back to infect America, uh, <laughs> starting in about 2005. I was going to add to that, Alan. Like if, when I started uh, researching different types of contract styles, a lot of what I could find on relational contracting comes out of Australia. And it could just be because I'm only researching in English. I'm not looking at other languages. I'm sure other countries, non-English speaking, have other similar types of contracting. But these high collaboration, what's called in Europe relational contracting, uh, we don't have that type of thing here in the United States. We now have you know, integrated project delivery, integrated form of agreement contracts, and we have uh, higher collaboration contracts. And sometimes we even have riders, which is like a contract exhibit that says that the client would like us to collaborate because the everyday, and, and I'll put this challenge out only because I work with Thais Elves, doc, Dr. Elves on the research project, and they had done an, exhaust, an exhaustive study of traditional contracts, Alan, and the word collaboration doesn't show up in traditional construction contracts, which is, to me, was like, what? Like, and I've been working in construction all these years. But norm, normal construction considers customers are procuring products. They treat it as a transaction. So it's a bilateral agreement that's basically adversarial in nature because the assumption is that neither of the two parties to the contract can be trusted. This is a form of contract that was developed 3,000 years ago for buying a sack of rice or an amphora of wine or whatever. Something that happens in a very short period of time. Most people who are listening to this will be party to a relational contract. They have experience of a relational contract if they've got married. <laughs> well, that's a good analogy. That's a, I wasn't, and, you know, you, you totally shocked me with that one, Alan. Totally shocked good, me. <laughs> good. That was the intention. You can't, yeah, a, a, a relationship is not a transaction. Right. You've got to talk about how you want the relationship to be. When you're designing a large hospital or a new railway or something like that, it's something that's going to take quite a long time. And trying to do that as if it were a transaction, when you've got to design not only the product, but the production system, it's, it's crazy. Yeah, you make a good point. I mean, most construction projects are months long and on the shorter scale, but the larger jobs like you're talking about can be decades long. And if you live in California, Alan, and you're on the high-speed rail, I'm just going to pick on them for a second. It can be multi-decades, <laughs> and we still have no fast train to get on. And I only say that oh. because I, I just made some friends. I'm, ta I'm talking to you, Mark, if you're watching the show. Like, my heart is with you and all the energy you need. <laughs> so that you can help those engineers. Uh, but you're totally right. In a relational contract, now that you've related it, I've never thought about IPD like that. And, and I've read Consensus Docs 300. I've read Integrated Forms of Agreement, multiple different clients, the Hanson Bridget contract. And most of the language is in those contracts is talking about how we're going to behave with each other. And it's and versus the other, and I've been on the other side where I've been on the traditional design bid, build, hard bid, even the AIA standard uh, contracts that the, the architects have for the industry, where they tell you like, they, they'll tell you, 
things that happen if this happens. It's like a, if this happens, do this. If there's a claim, do this. If there's an escalation, do this. If there's a, you know, if we fight, do this. It's all points back to usually division one. That's where like, it's like the marriage counseling to stay in your theme. <laughs> division yeah. one is the marriage counseling rules for when things go wrong. And the contract is designed for things to go wrong because that's the experience that large capital construction has like we talked about those stats where it's like and i just saw there was a new study published in the wall street journal here in the united states recently and they said mega projects that are near the billion dollar size or more now have a 99.5 percent fail rate which is almost it's guaranteed to fail <laughs> to deliver on time and on budget so um there's good news right alan IPD is a, is a good alternative. And, uh, you know, even the you're talking about this group in the UK going through a study action team and light bulbs are going off. Can you share some of the insights that people reading Integrated Project Delivery or LCI's uh, book, you know, what, what are some of the things that people are realizing and saying, wow, it makes them, you know, scratch their head or think differently? All sorts of things. I mean, it's very difficult to, to talk about it because it's so deeply embedded in the organizations, in, in the organization that's reading the book. We've, we've got one or two framework partners in the study action team. So they are delivery partners, but most of the people are um, employed by this um, public sector organization. It's difficult to respond to your question without giving away the identity of the organization. No, yeah, don't don't give the identity away. So let's uh, let's shift um, gears and, and so, go to a to a, let me hit you with a different question. So relational contracts and collaborative collaborative contracts. Now I'm getting tongue tied, and uh, lean construction are not well known management practices. And like you said, when you first got into this. You just knew with intuition that something was different at the airport and you wanted to learn more. So I would love if you can share uh, some successful project examples that you've been directly involved in that use these approaches and you can definitely anonymize uh, the guilty parties I'm, to protect the it's, wicked. It's, it's very easy to answer that question because I haven't been involved in any IPD or Alliance type projects. I have been trying to get that going here in the UK. Other people have been successful. I've not. Um, oh, there's a lot have to learn. Writing. <laughs> there's Ooh. a lot to learn from yeah. failure and resistance. So that was, that's another question that we often go to because people ask me that too. We, I had a post on LinkedIn a few weeks ago. Uh, at the time of this recording, it's February. And I, God knows when this is going to be seeing the light of day, Alan. I don't know because we've got, uh, you know, We've got a little batch and queue going on with the, the podcast recordings. However, I did record a LinkedIn post. Somebody had challenged me and saying that we were at an LCI event. So this is already a bunch of do-gooders like Alan and myself together. But there was a, a trade contractor had made the statement to the group saying that, you know, we're working on this hard bid public works uh, contract in the, in the city here in California, and they can't... Uh, they can't implement lean only because the client doesn't know what it is and doesn't encourage it. And for all, you know, I had James Pease with me in the room and among many other uh, people. And, and we were just like, 
wow. And James said right away, he said, I had that same problem 13 years ago. And now I don't let, and he's the owner now. He's on the owner side. He's like, I don't let the owner stop us or any party stop us from doing lean. And I've, I've felt the same way. So I made a short video and just said, it starts with what you can control, put your hands around. It, you don't need to go so big. There's a lot more that we can control that we don't realize. So, you know, what in all this resistance you've had, Alan, what are some of the common things that people tell you are reasons why we can't do it? Let's just unpack some of the myths you and I. Oh, reasons you can't do it. We're doing it already. <laughs> it's a classic. That is a um, class. I'm only laughing so hard because that is a classic one. Yeah. And uh, we haven't got time. You know, it's the classic. That's We've awesome. got time to do rework, but we haven't got time to do the planning to prevent the rework. So if we're just talking about lean construction rather than the full IPD Alliance stuff, then yes, yes I've done quite a lot of that. But going back to the company I've been working with, the organization I've been working with today, um, people are saying that, um, we can't do it that way because we've never done it that way. The also way we, classic. <laughs> w- the way we've been taught, you know, ever since they came into the industry through university and then in their first job and their second job and their third job and so on, it's always been done that way. So we can't do it any other way. That's a huge source of resistance. And it's reinforced by professional institutions, by universities and um, all sorts of other expectations that have risen up. Um, This is part of the normal construction culture, um, which is this um, transactional, um, adversarial, bilateral way of doing things. I'm talking to another client who are building a hospital in London. Um, they took six months to get a purchase order agreed. And now they want us there yesterday. Um, <laughs> it's just, it's, hold on a second. We've got to unpack. We have to unpack that one. Cause that, that doesn't ring so obvious to people that the uh-huh. frustration that Alan has on that. I've shared that many times where clients will take all of the float you had to make a decision. But the second they make it, they're issuing delay letters to you, the contractor for not accelerating for free to make up for all the time that they lost because they didn't have a meeting with the stakeholders or talk to the right people, or they waited for, you know, uh, whatever you want to call it, some quarterly thing. And that's not factored in. And so for all the clients listening out there, we are teaching contractors how to get savvy and make you responsible for that delay. Cause that is a hundred percent yours. And we know, I know firsthand Alan from being in a construction lawsuit that in at least the United States float and schedule float belongs to whoever gets to use it first. And that's how it's contracted in uh, held up in courts. So no matter what your contract says, if you're in the U S and England is probably similar because we have very similar laws, whoever gets to the float first gets to burn it up. So all parties should respectfully be mindful of the limited time that they're engaged and to use that time wisely, because we can't get that time back once it's gone. 
it doesn't matter who burns it first, project first thinking and this relational type of approach that Alan's talking about that we love in lean construction means that we're putting the project's needs ahead of individual needs so that we can be like Deming and optimize the whole system, which is also coincidentally on my sleeve. Um, that's, that, that's, that's great. But the, 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 the other point that I had to make to this client was you want us to dishonor our promises to existing clients to meet your requirements. If you want to be trusted by your supply chain, you've got to be willing to let them honor the promises they make on other projects because every construction company is connected to projects over which it has no control because their supply chain is working on multiple projects. And for me, the Flores's promise cycle, which is what I talk about it. I know other people talk about it in, in different ways. The idea is the idea that the customer makes a request. There is then negotiation around the conditions of satisfaction and the due date for delivery. And then all being well, there is a promise about what will be delivered on the basis of the understanding of the conditions of satisfaction. And that's a signal that performance will start. And at the end of the performance, the, the, the performer who made the promise will declare that they're complete. And that's the signal to the customer to um, assess the performance. And that cycle is how things get done. And what I love to do um, is when I'm teaching this, remind people that they started that cycle. Almost certainly they started that cycle the moment they were born. When they cried in the birthing pool or wherever it was, they were making a request. Mum and the midwife and all the other people around had a pretty good idea of what that request was, but it's only through experimentation that they could find out what it was that satisfied the request because there wasn't at that time the language to discuss it. And when the crying stopped, that was the signal, um, the declaration of acceptance because the, uh, the need had been met. That's a beautiful this, analogy, this is, Alan. This is something that runs through our lives. It runs through our relationships with our, our children and our grandchildren, our nieces and nephews and, um, and everyone else, as well as at work. And I think part of respect for people and continuous improvement is really deeply embedding this, this idea that has been so elegantly described by um, Fernando Flores and his colleagues. And if you haven't come across that, pay attention to that because that will really help you develop lean thinking, but in a much deeper and richer way than if you um, don't have that in your toolkit. I'm so lucky, Alan, because I'm spoiled. As you, as you look, I've got uh, the Bolt logo over my shoulder. It's my first week. Uh, this is back. It's not my first week now, people, but my first week at Bolt, I was doing some online training. And in the training, they had modules uh, for Last Planner System, and they had 
Fernando's request and promise cycle as part of my training and onboarding. And that was, I had read about it before, but to see it, you know, in practice as part of like how to get better commitments and better, be a better facilitator for last planner system. I just consider myself spoiled. <laughs> and then I was having, right. uh, having breakfast with Iris Tomlin in Berkeley and she looked, she looked across the street and she said, Felipe down that street, Fernando lives here. And he's like, we could walk to his house from where we are right now. <laughs> and I was like, and I told her, I said, if I didn't have to drive four hours to get back home, I would be tempted to go walk and knock on his door with you. But, uh, <laughs> but it's a small world. And uh, I think a lot of cool things are, are coming out, Alan, and these good ideas are spreading. As I want to go back to your Deming, let's go back to Deming. Yeah, yeah. And in your Deming training, where, where you studied and learned about Deming, you know, what's something from that? You mentioned variation, and I don't think a lot of people understand that very well. But of all the things that Deming taught in the system of profound knowledge, what has really stayed with you and that you use and call on the most when you're working with teams? So there's variation in everything, and that's normal, and operational definitions. If you say, I want a clean table, so some, you know, the conditions of satisfaction depend on what you want to use the table for. If you want to use the table to put bits when you're stripping down your motorcycle, you want a different level of cleanliness than if you want to use it as an operating table. Yeah. Words matter. People. Deming, matter. Take you. that, Jake. <laughs> Deming is still profound. I love that. And that's, 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 that's an example from straight from Deming. Um, that's a beautiful example. That's a, that's a good thing to take with you, especially when we're talking with people. And that's why we like in lean so much, the visual management, because you can't tell, like when I say even something and that we sometimes take for granted in lean circles, like last planner, it doesn't even mean the same to different people in the same project. It does not have the same meaning unless they're using it and implementing it. What's your favorite uh, go-to lean tool or method? I don't know that I've got a favorite one. What for me, what's important is that in a sense, there's no such thing as a lean tool. There are thinking processes which will help you achieve ends. So last planner as a tool is there to help you do something. And you know, lots of the tools that came out of Toyota, they are there to encourage a pattern of thinking which delivers a particular set of results. And if you think, oh, Toyota did that, so we should be doing it, that's not the right reason. You need to know what it is you're trying to achieve and then ask, what do I need to help me get into that way of thinking on a regular basis? Because one of the most difficult things to change is what goes on between here and here. And if we don't have crutches, walking sticks, whatever, to help us think in a different way, the old neural pathways are going to reassert themselves. We need tools to help change the neural pathways. Once they're changed, we don't need the, 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 the crutch or the walking stick or whatever. But as 
people in a system are always changing because of promotions and all sorts of other things, it's a good idea to keep the tool in place. Now, that's a brilliant analogy. It really showcases the context of uh, your systems thinking, training, and background. I love that answer, Alan. Thank you so much. I want to go back to you know your background and experience, especially now as uh, you're facing this cultural resistance, which is totally normal. So people listening, this is nothing new for change makers. I'd love to hear uh, your your thoughts. And, and thank you, Alan, for showing up to work every day and still going after the the resistance, but I want to hear your thoughts on what role does academia play in our industry? And if you could share some lessons specifically from academia or research that's impacted what you're doing in your work, I'd love to have you share that with the audience. Some time ago, I said to Glenn that um, I thought we ought to be paying attention to everyday learning. And that went into the 2016 last planner benchmark. And before the 2020 benchmark came out, Glenn said, wrote to me and said, what have you done on everyday learning? And I hadn't done anything, but that got me thinking. And I've been working with a professor in India, in Pune, um, thinking about everyday learning and how we build that particularly into the last planner system. We've, we've done a little bit of field research, not enough. Um, and, and if there are other people who are interested in how to systematize learning every day on projects so that we don't make the same mistake that we made yesterday again today. And by the time we get to the end of the project, we've built any number of changes into our neural pathways so that when we go to the next project, we take all that change with us rather than having to start again at the beginning because the lessons learned meeting for half a day that we had at the end of the last project got typed up and put on the C drive somewhere or the D drive or whatever it is these days. Sorry, that's my show. No, it's in the uh, cloud now. <laughs> Everything's right, in, the cloud. in the cloud. And, and you look up and it's a lovely blue sky. Um, except here, as you can see behind me, you know, the, the lessons learned meetings, people aren't prepared to admit things that might embarrass them. They're not prepared to admit things that might result in a claim from another member of the team, because you're at that stage in the project where, um, claims might make the difference between making a loss on the project and making a profit. Um, so people are very cagey about what they admit to. They'll admit to things that everyone knows about anyway. Um, and they'll admit to things that they're not embarrassed about and won't lead to a claim. So that cuts out a large amount of learning, but it's only reviewed for half a day and nothing changes. So everyday learning, I think is really important. And on my way to the 2014 IGLC, the International Group for Lean Construction meeting um, that was in Oslo, I stopped off in um, Copenhagen and went to the Design Museum. And the main exhibition was of Hans, Hans Fenger's work. Hans Fenger was a furniture designer, Danish furniture designer, and he designed the chair or the chairs in which Nixon and Kennedy sat 
for their presidential um, pre-election interview in 1960. Um, but what's interesting is, is what uh, Wenger said. He said, nothing is so good that it cannot be made better. Nothing is so good that it cannot be made better. So even if you've just finished improving something, you can start the improvement process again and you will make another improvement. So picking up what's on your shirt there, continual improvement, that is, you don't only need, as Paul Akers says, to make a two-second improvement every day. And in a year, you've made a huge improvement because in that time, you'll probably make some breakthrough improvements as well, which are much bigger than two seconds. Because, but because you're focused on the process, you're going to be making improvement after improvement after improvement. And that's a brand new uh, habit, very disruptive to the maintaining type of culture that we see all too often. And that's the whole name of the show, easier, better, and faster. It's uh, alluring for us uh, tinker-minded people to do and to play with. Alan, I got to thank you so much for your time. It's been incredible having you on the show. I want to ask you, if you could title the show, what would you title the show? Customers are rebuilding construction with relational procurement. All right, I'm getting that down. Awesome. Yeah, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. I'm gonna, before I stop recording, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you want to make point to the audience or anybody listening? I, I think just keep listening to Felipe. <laughs> Alan, thank you. That's going to be the clip of the show right there. Everybody, <laughs> you heard Alan say it. <laughs> And, uh, no, there, gonna... there is there is something more. Keep keep listening to Felipe and what happens between what he says. <laughs> I want to no, make that. I want to make not... that sound like uh, it's going to be my son's ringtone when I call him. It's going to be you saying "keep uh, listening." No, 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 no. Still, still not right. Um, no, I guess no. I'm not. Forget it. Keep listening to Felipe. Leave it at that. <laughs> Simpler. Oh my God, that was too much fun. Let me let me so, go ahead. Thank you very much, Felipe. Very special thanks to my guest. I'm Felipe Engineer Manriquez. The EBFC show is created by Felipe and produced by a passion to build easier and better. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, everybody. Let's go build. <laughs>